Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Neefer, your host, and today I'm welcoming Nathan Kaufman from the Kansas City Reserve, uh, and he's based in Omaha, Nebraska. Nathan, how are things going? Well, Paul, thanks for having me on the program today. Um, You know, start of a new year, it seems like there's a lot of things to be encouraged about, but uh, just kind of waiting to see if the current surge of the virus that everybody's been worried about passes uh, fairly quickly. Yeah, you know, it's interesting offline. We were, you were mentioning that uh, Omaha is fairly warm today, I think in the mid 50s. Uh, I'm in Phoenix, sort of helping my wife, uh, barely helping my wife uh, babysit our grandkids because I'm working. But yesterday when I uh, woke up, it was 48 degrees in Dayton, Washington, which is where I'm from. And it was 48 degrees in Phoenix. So that's not real. That's not real normal. So (laughs) it's not normal, but uh, 55 degrees in the middle of January, we'll take it. And I've got four (laughs) kids myself, so I'm familiar with some of those sorts of things. (laughs) So you'll have you'll have some fun or or they'll drive your wife crazy. I'm not sure which, you know. Maybe both at the same time. <laughs> exactly. So why don't we go ahead and get started with just a, a brief outline on your career, you know, up to this point, uh, just uh, from the beginning and then uh, where you're at right now. Sure. So I'll, I'll just mention I, I grew up in a small town in northeast Michigan called Augray. Um, my family did not come from a farming background, but it was a farming community. Uh, I have fond memories of driving down the dirt road and seeing my Uncle Will and Aunt Rosie give the familiar two-finger farm wave. Um, But grew up in Michigan. uh, After graduating high school and went to college, I I had an unusual path to economics in that I uh, actually finished with a chemistry degree. I worked for a few years uh, with that degree, um, but really got interested in economics. uh, Living overseas for a little while, I spent some time in Bosnia. Um, came back and, and went to grad school and decided to come back to, to focus on agriculture uh, and finished with an, a degree in economics from Iowa State with a focus on ag and finance uh, before joining the Federal Reserve. Well, you went from being a, did you, was your undergrad in Michigan or was that also in Iowa State? My, my undergrad degree was actually at a small liberal arts school in Canton, Ohio. Um, and, and again, that was uh, with a focus in, in chemistry before I had made the switch to go into economics. Well, I was going to see if we had like a Wolverine or a Spartan and a Cyclone. You know, you always, uh, you know, in the Midwest, you got to keep track of all those alliances. So. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm probably a Spartan at heart. And that's largely because when I was in high school, it was all about the Fab Five with the University of Michigan. And I guess I chose Michigan State to be different. <laughs> And and so you're at the Kansas City Federal Reserve, but uh, what what's your role at the at the KC Fed right now? So when I tell people about my job, a lot of times what I tell them is to in the Omaha branch office that we have with the Kansas City Fed is to try to provide input from this part of the country and specifically the state of Nebraska. We cover seven states, though, at the Kansas City Fed, which is in the middle of the country. It's got a strong ag concentration. And so I often tell people that, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying as best I can to represent the views that come from agriculture in this region. But then because of the focus that we have on ag, spend time thinking about conditions more nationally as well. And, and you said seven states. Just for our listeners out there, why don't you list those uh, seven states? 
We cover Nebraska, Kansas, and Oklahoma. We also have Wyoming and Colorado further west. We take the part, the northern part of New Mexico and the western part of Missouri as, as our district. Yep. So there is a, I would say there is a fair amount of ag in, the, in that district. So <laughs> we're heavy into ag and a lot of the major commodities that people might be most familiar with. Now, it, the Kansas City Fed, I know the national Fed is sort of made up of a board of governors and so on, but how is the makeup of the board of directors, how is that set up for the Kansas City Fed? Yeah, so the Kansas City Fed would be one of what we refer to as as 12 regional reserve banks that together with the board of governors that you mentioned in Washington is is what we uh, what we refer to as the central bank or the Federal Reserve System. Um, we have a number of, of different formal entities and structures that are designed to try to make sure that we're connecting with our region and providing input. And one of those is that we have a board of directors in each of our four offices. We also have an office in Oklahoma City and Denver. Uh, the board of directors that we work with then is crucial when it comes to making sure that there is a formal channel to provide some input into monetary policy. That's a diverse set of industries, not just agriculture that contributes to that. Um, but we look for regular ways of trying to make sure that we're interacting with our board and others in the community to, to provide input. Now, who who makes up that board? Is it is it uh, business leaders? Is it bankers? Is it uh, people that are already sort of in the government? Who who really makes up uh, that board of directors? Yeah, our board offices, um, with all of the offices of the Federal Reserve, are comprised of business and community leaders, industry, banking. Um, we try as best we can to make sure that we're capturing the um, diversity of the U.S. economy and the diversity of the region that we serve. For the district that we cover, since it does have such a strong focus on ag and commodities and even energy for that matter, um, we're usually pretty careful to make sure that we've got a representation from those industries specifically, just as part of a formal channel. There's lots of other ways that we would then uh, interact with the public throughout our region as it relates to ag, but the board of directors would serve as a relatively formal channel. Now, is there a is there a then a sort of a sub board for like Kansas or for Omaha, Denver, Oklahoma City that then sits on or reports to the Kansas City Home Office, so to speak? But I was just curious how how all that uh, rolls up. Yep, we have the the Kansas City office has its own head office board of directors, and they have um, some more specific duties. But then each of our branch offices, again, Omaha being one would have its own board of directors. So we have four boards of directors for our four offices. Uh, some of our board members from our branch offices will also attend head office meetings from time to time. So we often refer to our organization collectively as the Kansas City Fed, and it really is comprised of those four offices and boards that also uh, are all part of it. Okay, so that's the board of directors, but then you have a management structure too the reports to the board. So how is that management uh, uh, structure, how is that set up? Well, one of the things that might surprise people as the structure of the Federal Reserve is that we're not a, a government organization uh, at, the regional re at a regional reserve bank like the Kansas City Fed. Uh, the Federal Reserve was designed to be quasi-governmental or part public, part private, where the Board of Governors in Washington is, is largely a government organization. but. Um, the regional reserve banks have a fair amount of discretion and we're ultimately accountable to our board of directors. 
And so, for example, our board of directors at the head office in Kansas City would be responsible for choosing the bank president and has oversight for um, other things as it relates to governance and operations and functions of our of our bank of the Kansas City Fed. Uh, so, so we work with our board a, a lot on those matters, and ultimately, uh, they are they serve there as a, as a, as a sort of checks and balances for the for the Federal Reserve. Okay, and and again, you mentioned there's there's twelve Federal Reserve Bank districts. I'm going to say, and then there's sort of a national board of governors. How does how does the Kansas City Fed then interrelate with that national Federal Reserve? I'm just sort of curious how that operates. Yep. So each of the regional reserve banks operates quite independently, but subject to oversight from the board of governors. Um, so when it comes to specific committees that people may be familiar with, one being the Federal Open Market Committee, that's one that that people are probably familiar with as the as the entity that's determining the path of interest rates. And the presidents of each of the regional reserve banks participate on that committee, just as the governors at the board of governors do. And each of them are, are participating. But there is a chair of that board, which is currently Chair Chair Powell, uh, that people are probably familiar with. Um, so it's it's a collaborative arrangement where we're working together with the board of governors um, and each of the regional reserve banks having a fair amount of of autonomy, but then also. Uh, generally subject to oversight through various rules and procedures that might be put forth by the Board of Governors. Okay. And 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 I'm probably going to get dangerous here, Nathan. So I'm I'm just warning you up front uh, that I'm probably asking a question that I really don't know the answer to. Usually I try to ask questions I have an idea on, but I know that on the books of the Federal Reserve, there's about my memory is eight trillion of of assets is that all spread among the 12 federal reserve districts or is that all at the national level or i was just curious how that eight trillion is spread out among uh, among the federal reserve that's probably an example where it's specifically in reference to the federal reserve system and and the entity overall and so there there are some specific procedural sorts of things in terms of operations as to how those asset purchases are conducted through the office in in New York. Um, But it's really in a reference to the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve and more specifically the Federal Reserve system. So that would comprise the the regional reserve banks that we've discussed and and also the Board of Governors as that one entity. So, So part of that 8 trillion might be on the Kansas City Federal Reserve balance sheet, but majority of it's going to be on New York. Is that sort of a an accurate way of stating it or am I oversimplifying it? Uh, you know, the 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 eight trillion that you referred to is really just a collective and combined number. There's there is a balance sheet that each of the regional reserve banks has, uh, and and there's a portion of that. But uh, that eight trillion is probably just best best thought of as a combined. Okay. Um, number for the for the central bank overall. Okay. Yeah. The, I guess the uh, you know since I'm a CPA, I, I sort of get a little nerdish at times on these numbers. You know, that's uh, that's what I like uh, talking about. But uh, yeah, I, I think what we'll do now, uh, Nathan, is we'll go ahead and take a quick break for a sponsor message, and then when we come back, we're going to sort of dig into uh, some of the fun subjects, inflation and interest rates and so on. So. Uh, How does that sound? That sounds great. I'm looking forward to it.
get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness. Welcome back, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. Uh, again, I'm Paul Nefer, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with uh, Nathan Kaufman from the Kansas City Federal Reserve. Um, you know, we sort of, before the break, Nathan, we went through how the Kansas City Fed and, and even the National Federal Reserve is, is sort of structured. Um, what I'd like to do now is dig more, a little bit more into the granular part of it, uh, especially for the Kansas City Fed. Uh, what, what is the current outlook for the ag industry? Because that's, that's really what I, I think our listeners are really interested in is, is the ag industry, uh, primarily in your district, but maybe on a national level. What, what's the outlook for that? You know, I would say that we still see a relatively strong outlook for 2022, and this is coming off of a perhaps um, very strong uh, ag economy that we saw the past year and a half that might not have been expected based on the first couple months of the pandemic. Um, we've seen financial conditions, generally speaking, both among borrowers and lenders improve over the course of the past year and a half. Farmland values in our region and across the Midwest are, are up actually quite a bit over the past year or two. And generally expectations of seeing maybe more strength there as well. So this is following a period of what, what I've often referred to as, as a prolonged downturn in ag. For five or six years, we had been seeing um, something that was, was not quite as strong. So I think that generally speaking, 2022 still looks to be building off of the gains of the past couple of years, but perhaps maybe not as, many, as much of the increase that we had seen. And, and certainly the cost pressures that I know a lot of producers are experiencing are important to keep in mind. Yeah, and... and I was um, having a discussion with somebody a couple of days ago, and we were uh, not necessarily on the cost side, but the the ability to get crop inputs, not necessarily for 2022, because uh, we know that there certainly has been some issues, supply chain issues with getting inputs for 2022. But this person who was in industry and fairly high up is indicating that actually 2023 maybe even much tougher than 2022. Uh, have you seen anything related to that or is it just really too soon to know? There, there's a lot of uncertainty and that's been the that's been the environment we've been in for the past two years with lots of things connected to the pandemic. And you mentioned supply chains, there's labor shortages, there's a lot of things, inflationary pressures that have been intensifying the past several months. Um, I think part of what that might that comment might be reflecting is is simply that uh, you know, producers are, are often maybe prepaying for some input costs and so take some of those on board a little bit earlier. They're maybe marketing some of their product or, or using forward contracting to mitigate any potential downturn in prices. But if you were to see an intensifying cost environment together with 
maybe a, a weaker commodity environment. It's probably not going to have all that much of, of an implication for 2022, but I could see that it, it, it maybe be more uh, looking at 2023 as a potential concern. Okay. Okay. And then you you'd mentioned that that farmland values have, have held up or, you know, certainly have gone up. In your district, is there any particular states or regions of the district that really have seen higher or more of an increase than, than other parts of the district? Um, you know, the regions that we've seen the strongest increase, and this is actually something that's probably pretty consistent with recent years too, it would be those regions where the land is especially productive for crops. So in our region, thinking about Eastern Nebraska, Eastern Kansas, Iowa is not in our region, but some of the gains in Iowa have been especially strong. Um, land that's generally viewed to be premium land uh, and, and quite productive has really uh, gotten the most attention in terms of, of demand from buyers and, and prices for that reason. So that's probably a, a general comment, but the increases that we've seen, I would say, have been across the board throughout. So even like pasture land, you definitely have seen some increasing uh, increasing values on pasture land too? We've, we have seen it even in pasture land. Um, you know, the, those locations that are maybe closest to metro areas and cities or things that generally have other amenities associated with them is probably where we've also seen some of the increases. But um, I, I would say just as a general comment, the, the increase that we've seen in land values has been across the board and not just in our region, but um, lots of the other Fed districts that would have a concentrated ag sector as well. Well, since I just bought land about a year and a half ago in Iowa, I know exactly what you're talking about. So uh, I, I could sell it for almost a double right now or more than a double. And uh, and that was probably just more luck than anything. You know, that was the reality of buying it, you know, in August of 2020 when, you know, the pandemic, nobody wanted to buy and, you know, crop prices were down. And uh, and certainly in the last year and a half, we've seen a complete uh, 180 degree difference, I think. So uh, now, one of the things that's really keeping land values up are low interest rates. And we know that the, I'm going to say the tone of the Federal Reserve is that perhaps, and I'll let you expound on this, but perhaps we're going to see some increases in interest rates. Uh, where do you think interest rates will be maybe in 2022 and then maybe even going out a couple of years after that? Well, the first thing I would say is that, especially for the ag sector and to your point on farmland, is that interest rates really have been at historic lows. And so to the extent that that is a boost for farmland or even reduced borrowing costs, that's an that's an important just, uh, clarification there. Um, the, the Fed has, a, we have a mandate at the Fed to, on one hand, make sure that that policy is, is providing as much as it can to accommodate maximum employment and economic growth. And on the other side, maintaining price stability um, people may have seen some reports that inflation this week here in January touched uh, 7%, and, and that's the highest in about four decades. And so with inflation being something important for the Fed to monitor and, and, and maintain control of, uh, the tools that the Fed would use would be to, uh, would be to raise interest rates to, to bring some of the, those inflationary pressures under control. So with inflationary pressures rising, there's been maybe a little bit more discussion about seeing some increases uh, in 2022. It's, it's obviously difficult to suggest what that might be, but some of the 
uh, comments and materials that would be released by the, the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee might suggest that there could be a few, couple, two, three raises this year after uh, slowing off on the asset purchases that we talked about a little bit earlier. Now, if in, in a lot of our listeners out there probably aren't old enough, including perhaps yourself, Nathan, to be around back in the in the 70s and early 80s like I was. Now, I was in high school, college when it was really going on. Um, you know, what sort of initiated some of that was, you know, we had the Vietnam War, we had the OPEC oil shock, you know, it was a shock to the system. Uh, this time around, we have the pandemic and the supply chain shock. You know, back then, of course, interest rates were at a higher base when you really the inflation started. You know, they were more in that six, seven percent range and then went up to 18 percent. Now we're basically at zero, you know, plus or minus, you know, a few percentage points. You know, is there any way to even predict how high interest rates will go in order to get rid of inflation? Uh, I'm probably putting you on the spot, but uh, I, I'm just curious. You know, this this may last for three or four or five years before it gets under control. Is is that an accurate statement? Um, you know, I guess first what I would say, you know, for the the episode of the 1980s, I think that it's important to learn from those lessons. It's important to to talk to those that have experienced it, whether, you know, you were operating a farm during that time, living in a rural community or operating a bank that was facing a lot of pressure, um, because those were painful times for, for rural America. Um, you know, more recently, I would say that following the financial crisis in 08, 09, um, for most of the 10-year economic expansion that happened after that, which, by the way, was the longest economic expansion on record, our biggest problem was actually trying to get inflation high enough. So yeah. we were we were struggling with inflation that was bordering, um, you know, being too low, and now we're seeing pressures that are in the other direction. And so it's 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 an environment where I think um, caution is probably the most prudent approach recognizing the just the level of uncertainty with with an unprecedented event like we've experienced the past couple of years but recognizing the trends that had been in place prior to that too so um you know it would be really challenging to try to say what longer term interest rates might be or over a longer period of time um you know the 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 federal reserve or the fomc does provide some information on that that would suggest that over the course of the next couple of years you'd maybe see some normalization uh, but it is predicated on on all of that uncertainty that we're experiencing. Okay. Now let's say that you know let's say that interest rates over the next couple of years increase by let's say 400 basis points. You know, four percent on average. Um, yeah. To me, that then suggests likely that farmland values are likely going to go down. Now we've been saying that for 10 or 15 years, and it really hasn't happened. But is is that something that you guys are, are taking a look at or want to make sure that that's in your sort of your uh, basket of changes or, or things that you need to do? I'm just curious on that. Yeah, we pay a we pay a lot of attention to farmland and in part because farmland is the most significant asset on the balance sheet of the farm sector for one, but also because. Um, banks often do use farmland as collateral that would be tied to operating loans. And so, you know, the le some of the lessons that were learned in the 1980s would would have that as a, as a specific point to keep in mind. So we definitely would be thinking about implications for agriculture and for farmland 
if we were to face a, a rising interest rate environment. It's probably not just the how, how far interest rates do rise, but over what time horizon. Um, you know, 4% sounds like a lot based on where we've been for the past 10 or 12 years, but depending on how much time transpires over that, that, that might also be important. So, um, you know, I think that the, the trajectory is going to be important, uh, you know, this next year or two, just to kind of see how things play out. Okay. And, you know, we sort of keyed in on, on ag itself, but because you are the Federal Reserve, you know, you, you have a lot of member banks, I'm going to call them member banks. Uh, community banks. Uh, I, I know discussing with some of my uh, clients slash friends that are that are either owners or work at a community bank. You know, with the PPP loan, all the income generated by that, uh, with the you know very very low charge offs. That really those community banks, even though they've had a compression in in you know the spread that they can earn, they seem to be fairly profitable. Is is my assumption on that correct, or or what are you seeing in the district for for the community banks? Yeah, the you know I would say community banks and ag banks specifically in our region have have done fairly well, and and part of that is because of the general health of the ag sector the past couple of years. But even prior to that, I would say that although conditions in agriculture were were deteriorating for a little while. Um, most producers were still in a place to be able to repay loans on a consistent basis. We weren't seeing a lot of outright defaults. Um, you know, one of the challenges right now, I would say, for banks is probably generating demand for loans. Um, a lot of people might remember the years from 2010 to 2013, uh, when a lot of farmers were maybe more flush with cash and not taking out as much in the way of, of loans. And, and that's some of what we've seen more recently with the rebounding conditions is, is that actually demand has, has not been as strong. Um, but I would agree that banks have generally been doing pretty well. Yeah, now at least uh, that's uh, at least that seems to be the perception I have. And then I'm curious, uh, and again, this is a question I'm asking Nathan that I don't know the answer to. Um, is the farm credit banks, you know, because uh, yeah, are they under the umbrella of the Federal Reserve, or do they have their own separate sort of quasi-governmental agency that they report to? Uh, the farm credit system would be its own entity, and they would be regulated by the Farm Credit Administration in Washington, D.C., uh, and, you know, work through their wholesale banks, the, the farm credit banks uh, and, and the associations that then provide the lending. Um, you know, so we often do talk about the farm credit system because they represent a sizable share of ag lending activity. Commercial banks generally account for about 40 percent and farm credit about 40 percent. Uh, though farm credit's probably a bit more concentrated in, in real estate relative to banks. Right, right. Okay. That's, uh, I, I was fairly certain that was the answer, but I wasn't uh, uh, totally sure. So uh, now we've sort of discussed sort of the trends and the outlooks. Uh, I, I guess one question I always try to ask on on the blog, and and there may be nothing that, that you worry about it, uh, that keeps you up night, but my question is, is there something that keeps you up at night or you worry about for the system? Uh, is it related to COVID or what, what keeps you up at night as far as in your, in your current role? Well, there's, there's a lot of answers that I could, the different directions that we could take with that. And we started out by talking about four kids. It might be that more than anything, but um, what, what I would probably highlight specifically is the, is what we've observed recently on, on inflationary pressures and maybe the causes of some of those things. Um, 
Inflation can be really challenging for households to manage. It's challenging for businesses to make decisions and, and knowing how to plan. Um, it, the longer some of those pressures persist, it, it maybe gets even harder to make decisions and make plans. So I would say some of the, the, the challenges with respect to inflation are, are probably worth noting. Um, some of the costs that a, a lot of people are seeing, and, and this has definitely been true in ag with respect to fertilizer and other inputs, have been more than what anybody might have expected to see a couple of years ago and, and hard to deal with. So I would say that's probably something that that maybe has the potential for being um, most concerning just because of how different it is relative to where we had been and, and what it means for a business that's ultimately trying to maintain profitability long term. And, you know, and that's that's one of the reasons I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, but maybe not on a couple of my farms in the Midwest. I actually took advantage of the, there's a fairly new crop insurance called margin insurance or margin protection insurance. And, you know, it allows us to sort of lock in that corn value and soybean value, but it also allows us to lock in that base of farm inputs. And if that gets compressed, you know, that margin gets compressed either because prices go down or the cost of inputs, you know, the fertilizer and, and all those inputs go up then then uh, there's a payment on that. So we'll see if that actually makes a difference this year. The only concern I have with that sometimes it's sort of a black box on how they calculate uh, you know the farm inputs. It's easy to know what the crop price is, but it's a little tougher to know what that farm input is, uh, what that truly is. So uh, we'll, we'll just see how it works out. Yeah, you know what I, I would say too, I guess that um, generally speaking, a, a disciplined approach to marketing and risk management is generally one that works pretty well from one year to the next. And especially in an environment where there is as much uncertainty uncertainty as there has been, it's probably something important to keep in mind, um, you, you know, really taking a, a conservative, cautious or mindful approach, I guess, to managing risks, uh, making sales and, and thinking about costs. Okay. Okay. Now we're getting right to the end of the podcast. Uh, is there any other items that you want to go over before we sign off? Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. You know, a lot of the, I would say the the risks ahead, we've talked about agriculture specifically, but honestly, a lot of the risks I think are probably tied more to broader economic macro conditions and lots of things connected to the pandemic. Um, inflation being one of those, but we could talk about labor shortages supply chain disruptions, things that do have some connections to COVID that we've seen the past couple of years. Um, so there's a lot there to pay attention to. But um, again, I think uh, for, for producers out there, for others that are running a business or thinking about how to plan, uh, I think being um, you know conservative and, and being mindful of the risk is, is probably an appropriate approach. Okay. Well, I think what we'll do is maybe we'll plan on six months or a year from now, maybe we'll touch space again and, and just see if that, uh, if those risk patterns have changed any. So, <laughs> but, well, uh, well, let's hope that we've seen a little bit more normalization with, with a few things anyway. Yeah, no, that, that, that would be good. Uh, uh, actually for me, this is like my one year anniversary, I guess, of getting COVID. I was down in Phoenix when I got it and and I really don't want to go through that bout again. If I get the Omicron that's a little bit less painful, maybe I can deal with that. But so far, I haven't been hit with that. So uh, hopefully it stays that way. Yep. Okay. Well, again, Nathan, thanks a lot. And uh, again, this is the 
Farm CPA podcast uh, presented by Top Producer. And this is Paul Nefer, your host, signing off. <laughs>